Um, we're going to continue your, your studies in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And the allocated passage to me is Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. And as we read through it, we'll notice that this narrative in Mark's Gospel, it records a conversation between the Lord Jesus and religious leaders of his day. You'll notice named in verse 1 here as Pharisees and scribes. Uh, from Jerusalem, which of course was the centre of the Jewish religion. Now when Jesus was here, and you'll notice this if you had to read through the Gospels, you would notice that when Jesus was here, the biggest opponents of the Lord Jesus were in actual fact not the ordinary people, because the ordinary people heard them gladly, but were in fact the religious leaders. And I remember a time when Elaine and I had a Bible study with a lady who was interested in joining the church. But when we pointed out that it was not just about joining the church, as she had been before in another church, every member of our church was a truly born-again believer. Uh, and when we were going through a Bible study with her, to bring her to that point, which she did come to, um, we, uh, it became very apparent that the greatest opponents of the Lord Jesus were the religious leaders. And I think that quite shocked her, because up until this point she had been religious, she had attended church, she was a member of the Church of Scotland, and so on. And to find that out seemed to come as quite a shock to her. Anyway, they were the biggest opponents, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The three groups, of course, were different, but uh, they also held things in common. They did actually have their own agenda and beliefs, but they were all committed to the law of Moses and the revered Moses and the temple worship system. They were all committed to that. The Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Judaism and consisted of 70 members, uh, that was the Supreme Court of Ancient Israel, if you like. They had members from both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And as far as the scribes were concerned, their main role was to study the law, and as the name kind of suggests, I suppose, uh, transcribe it and write commentaries on it. And they took their job of preserving scripture very seriously Indeed, and they would copy and recopy the Bible meticulously, even counting letters and spaces and so on, to ensure that each copy was correct. And so we must give honour where honour due, because we can thank the Jewish scribes for preserving the Old Testament portions of the Bible. No one would question, not for a minute, the dedication of these people. And the earnestness of the Pharisees and scribes, which shows we can be sincerely wrong. We can be sincerely wrong. As Paul, a Pharisee dedicated to the law of Moses and so on, admitted he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And Martin Luther, who entered the monastery in Erfurt in Germany, about four, 500 years ago 
fulfilled all austerities that were imposed upon him, and he even imposed more austerities on himself. And it was all with one aim and one object. It was to find favour and acceptance with God. But he admitted, I was sincerely wrong. And then he studied, after he studied, the book of Romans. And he found out that the way of acceptance with God and the way to heaven is not through our own efforts, but it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done when he came into our world and went to the cross at Calvary and died there for us. And he and others realised we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and based on Scripture alone, and if we want to complete the five solas, as it were, uh, to the glory of God alone. And that's really important, isn't it? But you see, it runs counter to our human nature. We want to do something, don't we? To gain God's favour. And it means that we have to lay aside our pride, and we have to come humbly before God, and acknowledge we can do absolutely nothing to gain his favour, or find acceptance with him. And we must trust in all that Jesus Christ has done at the cross at Calvary. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and, you know, it's very relevant here, based on scripture alone. And that's where the Pharisees and the scribes went wrong, because they had the Old Testament, and they revered the law of Moses, particularly, but around the law, they added what is known as oral tradition, which was passed down from generation to generation, and eventually it was written down, I think just after the disruption of the temple in AD 70. You see, for example, Moses said, don't work on the Sabbath day. But how does that work out in practice? And so what they did was, they made a whole lot of rules and regulations as to how they could actually keep that law and all the many other laws. And what happened was, they had they amassed an enormous amount of rules and regulations. So this oral law basically contained all these uh, rules and these regulations. They compiled a whole set of rules to cover that and every other area of life all with the idea that it would help these people to keep the law. And ceremonial washing, which comes into a passage today, uh, which indeed there is a subject of the controversy in our passage, was very much part of their lifestyle. So that's something of the background of this story. But if you had been, here, if you had been there that day, as soon as you saw this delegation from Jerusalem, you would have said to yourself, oh, oh, <laughs> Here's trouble. Here's trouble. You see, as I said already, they had form, as it were. They were known for, and they had a reputation for opposing Jesus. And sure enough, if you look at verse 2 there, you'll notice it says, they found fault. They found fault. That's why they came. And it says, they found fault. They obviously saw Jesus as a threat, as he challenged their thought processes, 
They're teaching him the lifestyle. And as they join him here, in the midst of his Galilean ministry, his popularity is obvious and they dislike that intensely. You know, just to give you some kind of idea, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught with authority, and then it adds these words, not as the scribes. And that gives you some kind of idea as to the situation, because the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were the ones who had the official authority. And yet Jesus comes into this situation, and he teaches the people and the Bible says he taught. The people were amazed because he taught with authority. And I think you know what you know what the situation is like, don't you? There are some people who stand up, and you know, I suppose we might say they have presence. You know, that kind of indefinable kind of attribute, as it were. They have presence, and when they speak, you must listen to them. And it doesn't matter if they go on for an hour, <laughs> you know, you're, you're still transfixed because they're speaking with authority. They might not have much in terms of physically, uh, official authority, but they speak with authority. And then you might get somebody else following them and they come up and, you know, they have this official authority. And after 10 minutes, you're looking at your watch and saying, oh no, <laughs> when's he going to finish? And that's what it was like with the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus comes into that situation and he teaches with them. And so he was a real threat to them, you know. And yes, trouble was brewing that day. And it says they found fault with him. Now, if you have a red letter Bible, I don't know if you have that, but if you do have a red letter Bible, you will readily notice that around 16 of these 23 verses are the words of Jesus Christ. So on that count alone, on that count alone, this is a very important passage of scripture. As Jesus identifies, and I've given my message today uh, a title, the heart of the problem. <laughs> the heart of the problem. Jesus goes right to the heart of the problem. And so I've divided it into four, this passage today, uh, just to help us. Hopefully we'll just leave that up, that's the only slide I have. Verses 1 to 5. The Pharisees and scribes question Jesus. Verses 6 to 13, Jesus answers the Pharisees and scribes. Not directly, we'll notice, but he does answer them. And then verses 14, sorry, that's 6 to 13. Uh, verses 14 to 16, Jesus speaks publicly, as he draws the crowd around him, on the question asked by the religious leaders. So he then addresses their question, because there's something more important that he has to tell everyone about this. And then verses 17 to 23, Jesus privately explains further to his disciples. So, we'll read this passage together. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 7, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition 
of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah, sorry, he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man or a woman. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man that defiles a man for from, when, for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications murders, thefts covetousness wickedness, deceit lewdness an evil eye, blasphemy pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and defile a man. And as I said earlier, most of this is indeed directly the words of Jesus, and it comes to us in all its power today, and we do trust the Lord will bless it. You'll notice uh, we, we come to our first uh, section then, and that is verses 1 to 5. Pharisees and scribes question Jesus. Now, You'll notice that the question is in verse 5. You see that? With the previous four verses explaining the background to it. Verse 5 reads, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now, of course, it's a good practice to wash hands 
before a meal. You'll remember that Jason told us that over and over again during the coronavirus. And Boris, he told us that as well, didn't he? Over and over again. And I'm sure he'd, he did his own advice. Or we would like to think so anyway. And many others, they told us that. And it was good advice. Wash your hands. Keep washing your hands. So there's nothing wrong with that. And I hope we haven't forgotten that important message and drifted back into our own ways. Our old ways. But that's not the point here, is it? That's not actually the point. Because maybe the disciples actually did wash their hands. But they didn't wash their hands in the way that the tradition of the elders told them to. I understand that what they did was they washed their hands up to the elbows. And when I was thinking about this, it's maybe a bit like a, a surgeon who's about to perform an operation. It's a bit like ceremonial cleansing, isn't it? You know, when you wash, you wash them, you know, sort of, you know, with all the sterilising solution and all the rest of it, and you know, the running water and you know all the rest of it, and then they the put off the taps with their elbows and that kind of thing. And uh, it's a bit like ceremonial cleansing. And the fact was that, according to the scribes and the Pharisees, is what they should have been doing. It's not really meaning that they didn't wash their hands, but they didn't do it in the way that the tradition of the elders told them to do it, in that ceremonial cleansing way. Verse 3 says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, Matthew also records this story, but Mark here, he adds a little bit more than what Matthew adds. And I think that's because it's a different audience, it's a different kind of people that will be reading this. And as non-Jewish people would read Mark's Gospel, verses 3 and 4, you'll notice, explain the thinking behind the question posed in verse 5. Verse 4 explains further when it says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and they hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and so on. So there's a lot of ritual going on here, isn't there? In the lives of these people. And the disciples, they're not involved in it. They're not involved in it. And that's what they find fault. And so the religious leaders find fault. And they ask Jesus this question in verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him. They didn't ask the disciples by the way. They asked him. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders. But eat bread with unwashed hands. In other words they were accusing Jesus. They were accusing Jesus. Not directly but indirectly. Through the actions of the disciples. But then it was Jesus they were targeting, isn't it? That's why they came. They came to target Jesus. And this possibly was the only way they could find to do it. That kind of thing still happens today in everyday life, doesn't it? Notice the core in the accusation of this accusation in verse 5. They weren't accusing the disciples of disobeying the law of God. But they were accusing the disciples of disobeying the tradition of the elders mentioned also at the close of verse 3 in our passage so Jesus addresses that very issue in his answer to them 
And we come to our second point, our second section, and that is verses 6 to 13. Jesus answers the Pharisees and the scribes. He does answer them, and as we said already, but not by addressing their question directly. Because he knows what they're all about and why they're there. And so he takes this opportunity to speak to them about really important matters. Things that they really need to know and consider. Look at in verses 6 and 7. He begins his answer to them by quoting from the Old Testament in Isaiah 29 and 13. And he compares these people, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, to people of that day. And that was about 700 BC. And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and so on. So he brings to bear upon them the Holy Scriptures. They never mentioned the Scriptures. The scribes were involved in copying and recopying the Holy Scriptures, but they never mentioned the Holy Scriptures. They found fault, and it was on the basis of the traditions of the, the elders. And so he, he answers by challenging them on what's important to them. Firstly, is it the God-inspired authoritative Holy Scriptures, the Bible if you like, or the edicts and the traditions of men? What's important <laughs> to you? What's important? And I suppose it's a challenge to you. What's important to us? The traditions of men or the commandments of the Holy Scriptures. So he asked that question effectively. And secondly, what's important to you, what's important to them, is it the external or the internal? What people think of you, or what you really are, or what you really are. Now that comes, you know, very pointedly to all of us, doesn't it? What's important to us? What people think of us, or what we really are before God. Before God, Effectively, he's asking them, what's important to you? What's important to you? Well, we know what was important to them from what they said earlier. But Jesus, he spells it out here. Look at verse 7. He says, teaching, you're, you're teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And then into verse 8, laying aside or ignoring... The commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And further, verse 9, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And finally, verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. So their choice is clear enough, isn't it? <laughs> they have chosen... The tradition of men. That's what was important to them. That's what really was important to them. Now it's strong language here, isn't it? And it raises a very pertinent question. Does that happen today in our religious world? You see, in our secular world, people certainly ignore and reject God's word as they did verses 8 and 9. But does that happen today in the religious world? Like some or all of you, I sometimes kind of feel a kind of sense of despair when I listen to debates or uh, perhaps some kind of speech that is made between so-called Christian leaders, certainly religious leaders, 
uh, perhaps at the General Assembly or whatever, and uh, they're debating some theological point, and they get up and they make their statement uh, or the uh, or whatever, and they never mention the Bible. They never mention the Bible. It's what they think or what the tradition has always been. They never mention the Bible. And that's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting right to the very root of the problem here. And then in verse 6, after drawing attention to the authority of the word of God by quoting from it, he challenges them further on what's important to them. Is it the external or the internal? Is it what people think they are or what they really are before God? And in answering them, he speaks directly to them. We would say, we would possibly say, he pulled no punches. He told it as it was. He didn't spare them and so on. And so he speaks and he, in verse 6, you'll notice he addresses them as hypocrites. Hypocrites. And probably if we were there, we would say, well, that's a bit hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, hold on, you know, go easy. That's a bit hard. He addresses them as hypocrites. And I was interested to notice that the word hypocrite means, you know, that the term originally referred to actors who wore masks on stage as they played different characters. And so Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribe, you're actors, you're actors. You're not what you project yourself to be. And notice what it says in verse 6b. It says, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So he goes right to the very heart of the problem. In verses 10 to 13, Jesus gives a practical exposition of Jeremiah 17 and 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? And all of us, all of us, without exception, if we are absolutely honest before God, we will recognise that that's exactly the case. The heart is deceitful. You know, I don't even know my own heart properly. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? And so Jesus cites one example of the depravity of the human heart by highlighting one way that the Pharisees and the scribes were using their own tradition to avoid their obligation under the law of Moses. You know, it's one thing, in a sense, just to say, you know, to, to sidestep the law of Moses, but then to actually use their own tradition to allow them to escape fulfilling the law of Moses. And that's what they were doing here, isn't it? And this word Corban is actually introduced to us. And to understand this, we need to understand what Corban in verse 11 uh, actually means. Now, I was going to say you've probably never heard this word before, this word Corban, but perhaps you have. But just to say it has absolutely nothing to do with Jeremy. Under the law of Moses... And I'll try and explain this. I've written this down here because, you know, I was kind of, I kind of realised that I could start trying to explain this, and uh, the people at the end of the day won't be any more the wiser, and maybe you won't be any more the wiser 
after I try to explain what I've written down here. But it said, under the law of Moses, a man was duty-bound to provide for his mother and father's needs in their old age or sickness. But one of the traditions of the elders allowed a son to declare his possessions devoted to God or Corbin. That's what Corbin means, and it does actually say that in the passage, doesn't it? So that the parents would have no claim to assistance. And so Jesus condemns this practice of using this tradition to invalidate the command of God. That's how deceitful a human heart is, isn't it? Verses 12 and 13, Then you no longer let him do anything, this is the scribes and the Pharisees, speaking about how they were hindering the normal people from looking after their parents, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And then it adds, and many such things you do. So this was just an example, actually. You know, it says, many other such things you do. This was just one example of how they operated, of how they operated. So we come to a third point, verses 14 to 16, and I'm not going to spend the same amount of time on this. But Jesus speaks publicly on the questions asked by the religious leaders. Jesus gathers a crowd around him, you'll notice here, and he speaks to them about the problem raised with him by the Pharisees and scribes. Now, it essentially is a problem of defilement. It's a problem of defilement. And it's not an unimportant subject. According to verses 14 and 16, it's very important. But the approach of the religious leaders at that time, uh, the approach that the religious leaders take, is all wrong. You see, because they focus on that which is unimportant and ignore that which is important. And you probably know people that do that as well. In fact, I suppose we've all done it at times. Jesus makes a brief statement statement in verse 15. And he says this. There is nothing that enters into a man, this verse 15, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. So he speaks to the crowd and that's his message to them. And we'll just leave it there just now. We'll go on to our fourth point, verses 17 to 23. He enters the house with his disciples where they ask him to explain his statement further. Where he effectively says, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Not my quotation, somebody else's. The heart of the problem, the heart of the human problem, is the problem of the human heart. And he says to them in verses 17 to 23, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, it's that that defiles a man. And then he goes on to say, For from within out of the heart of man, it says, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, 
thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, could you imagine a society where all of this is absent? It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Your car insurance would be cheaper for a start, and your house insurance would be cheaper for a start. You wouldn't need to borrow locking your doors or anything. It would be marvellous if all of these things, and you wouldn't have all this family break-up and all the rest of it. If all of these things were absent from society... And Jesus traces it all back to the human heart. The human heart. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were outwardly good. But Jesus said to of them in Matthew 5 and verse 20. And this must have come as a shock. He said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say... He's spelling it out to them, isn't he? You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And he also says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <laughs> so you see, it's a heart problem. It's a heart problem, isn't it? The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. David, who sinned terribly against other human beings, he acknowledged that his sin was primarily against God. He said, against you and against you only, I have sinned. You see, we can do wrong against someone who's very close to us. And really that's quite heinous in a sense. You, you see it every day. But our sin primarily is against God. And that's what David says. This is what he said to God is recorded in Psalm 51 and 10. You know, after that, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, we can look for the answers to all the problems in society today without looking in the right place. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And David says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. And maybe you're wondering how your life has gone wrong. And you would like to have this assurance of knowing God in a real and personal way. But you don't know how to express it. Well, we're going to just sing a chorus now. And really it's based upon Psalm 51. And maybe the words of this chorus will just allow you to express to God how you feel, your aspirations. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me.